0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, Studying the Life and Work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Well, you can open up your Bibles, please do, to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible, I prefer a paper Bible uh, because it doesn't make me as insecure as when you're looking at your cell phone, and I just think that you're tweeting or liking something on Facebook, right? Now, you can, uh, if you do have your... your, you know, your cell phone and you want to follow along in your Bible there, do that. Do me a favor. Put it on airplane mode or whatever your fake iPhone does. Uh, so, you, you know, so you can focus in on, uh, on the text this morning. You're not distracted. My wife prayed this morning as uh, we were praying backstage that we often have our brains kind of begin, can, can be like our Facebook feed now. We kind of take the shape of our Facebook feed where we're on like one tweet at a, at after another, one thought after another. Um, and we can become really distracted. So during this time, we want to focus in on the Word of God and what God would have for us. So open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We've been working verse by verse through the entire book of Mark this year. We've reached verse 30 of the ninth chapter, and we're going to be covering seven verses um, this morning. We are really in this un- a unique section of Mark. If I wanted to, I could brand this, these next few weeks as a whole different segment of the gospel of Mark, okay? I could, this could be a whole different sermon series if I wanted it to be because Mark is really sh- zeroing in and showing us what it looks like, hear this, to be a normal Christian. Now, there's a lot of people out there talking about being radical and being abnormal and being like a Navy SEAL for Jesus. Mark is here like, just this is what a normal Christian looks like, right? So this is for normal people, a normal gospel for normal people to be normal Christians. And that's what it means for us. Last week we learned, here's what a normal Christianity looks like. Normal Christians put their weak faith, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, in a strong Savior. And it's the strength of the Savior that saves them, not the strength of their faith. This week we're going to learn how to be great In the kingdom of God. We all want to be great, don't we? We all want to be noticed, loved, esteemed. We all want to be the first in our field, first in our class, first in our gym. The Bible says that this thirst for greatness comes from God. In the beginning, God made man in His image. It's called Amago Day. He made them. That has all kind of implications. But one of the implications of that is that God Himself is greatness personified. God is great. He's the definition of great. And therefore, to be made in His image means to seek after greatness, to long for greatness. This desire for greatness is a good thing because it's meant to drive us to the source of all Greatness. You have a hunger for food, and that hunger is meant to drive you to food that you can eat, right? You have a thirst or a hunger for greatness, and that's meant to drive you to the source of greatness, God himself. But in the beginning, Adam and Eve, uh, we saw this desire for greatness kind of take an ugly turn, right? They were created to find greatness in relation to God, but instead they chose to reject God and to push out into the world and try to find greatness on their own to define greatness in their own terms, away from God. Now, this is called rebellion, and obviously, this rebellion completely backfired on them. Instead of finding greatness and becoming great like they thought they would, away from God, they actually realized how small they were. Immediately, when they sought greatness away from God, and they did the one thing, can you just imagine that? I was meditating on them this, this, this week In a garden of yes, there was one no. To live in such a world again. A garden of yes, you can eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, spend your time doing whatever you want, there's one tree of no. In a garden of yes, there's one tree of no, and of course, they choose the one tree of no to define their their own greatness. Now, for the first time, what do they do they define their own greatness they go search for it outside of god immediately they don't get they don't feel great they feel small they find themselves to be naked and ashamed of their nakedness that's an immediate sense of inadequacy an, an immediate sense of insecurity and it drove them to make fig leaves to cover themselves and to hide now from the god of greatness so now mankind has this, can you think of this, just the angst there? There's a thirst for greatness, but now I'm naked and ashamed, and I'm hiding from the actual source of greatness. So I want us to see two things right away. One, we were made by greatness for greatness. And secondly, because of what happened with Adam and Eve and the curse that came upon all of creation because of that, our search for greatness has been distorted. Right? off. But what we're going to find out in our text this morning is that true greatness can be found again. We can be great. There is a way to be great again, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, how to be great in the kingdom of God. How to be great in the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at our text. Chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there. Remember, he's coming off the mount and finds this you know his, his disciples doing all kind of crazy stuff and teaches them what they taught last week and then on from there he passed through Galilee so they're walking together the disciples and Jesus are walking together and he did not want anyone to know so here's a key piece of discipleship with Jesus there's some things that Jesus only teaches his core group, his, his missional community. Jesus is walking with his missional community. He takes them in a roundabout way so the crowds don't follow him. He's got a special lesson just for his disciples that he doesn't want the world to know of, okay? And this is what he teaches them. He was saying, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, that's the Messiah, the King of the universe, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, this is the second time so far in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has told his apostles that he's going to suffer and die at the hands of men and then be resurrected three days later. But the disciples still can't get their head around what he means. Think about it. Jesus. The true son of greatness, the son of God, how could the son of God, the true son of greatness, how could he suffer and die? Have you thought about that? I've never heard of a great king who suffered and died before they were coronated king. This seems a little bit backwards, right? But what Jesus is doing is he's showing his disciples. That greatness, here it is, greatness has been redefined. True greatness, greatness in the everlasting kingdom of Jesus doesn't come by conquering your enemies, but by serving them. Greatness comes through service, not accomplishment. Greatness doesn't come through how many degrees you have or how much money is in your bank account or if you make partner or not. True greatness comes by how well you serve those who have less power than you. Now, hear that. To be a Christian doesn't mean you stop wanting to be great. doesn't mean you stop striving for greatness. To be a Christian means that you search for greatness in the way that Jesus shows us here. Jesus has told us this several times over this past chapter. He's saying, I am the king of the universe. I'm the heartbeat of the whole galaxy. I am the reason you exist. I am the Christ, the long-awaited king, but I am going to win my crown through a cross. And if you're going to follow me, you are going to have to take up your cross and follow me. See, for Jesus, greatness comes through the cross comes through the cross. He can't go around the cross. And that means for us, if we want to find greatness, it's going to have to go through our own cross as well. But the the disciples still don't get it, right? Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again in three days. And they still don't know what he's talking about. And they literally say, I don't know what you're talking about it, or they're, they're thinking it. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm afraid to ask you, right? They feel kind of dumb in the presence of Jesus. I'm just not even going to ask him. Now, now, why would they be afraid to ask Jesus, what are you talking about here? How, what do you mean you're going to die? This doesn't make sense to us. You can't be king if you're going to die. What does that mean? Why are they afraid? Well, the next few verses show us. Oh, we love the disciples. Verse 33. And they went to Capernaum. So they're still walking on the way. And when he was in the house, he asked them. So let let me just show you this. For those of you who want to be a disciple of Jesus, okay, it's more that coming to this gathering is vitally important. You need to come and sit under the word of God and learn and study and have your mind stretched and have your theology shaped. You need that, okay? But to be a disciple of Jesus means you follow him with other people and you live in community with one another. Jesus is teaching his disciples on the way. He's not going, hey, guys, we have a classroom, 101, show up and I'm going to teach you about discipleship. They're walking, he's talking with them. He's, they're walking, okay, we got some privacy now, I'm going to teach you about my cross. Okay, we're in the public now, I'm going to teach you about the kingdom of God. Okay, great. And then he overhears, like at lunchtime, right, he overhears them having this little conversation. Jesus says, oop, I'll take that, I'll put that in my pocket, that's coming out later. Right, he hears their normal conversation, And he's going to use that, and he's going to bring it up as a discipleship opportunity later. So it's important for us to be eating together and to be fellowshipping with one another and to be shopping together and to be having coffee with one another and working together. It's important for us to have those touches in each other's lives if we're going to be true disciples of Jesus. Now, look what happens. When he's in the house, he asks them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, this is just special. Can you just kind of feel the awkwardness here? Jesus is teaching them. He spends the morning, teaches them that he himself, the Son of God, is going to be betrayed and crucified in a gruesome fashion. He's trying to develop them in this what we call a theology of the cross and they start walking to Cape Capernaum. And if I was Jesus, I'm not, but if I was Jesus, I'd be thinking, oh man, these guys are going to be meditating on that sermon. That was a powerful sermon. There's a lot of gospel truth in that sermon. Just told them I'm going to die. That's a heavy weight. They're probably stressing out right now. I bet they're just their minds are just consumed with the cross. What is the cross going to mean for us? But what do they do? Jesus here's this little comment coming from them. They aren't thinking about Jesus or, you know, his future humiliation and how the Son of God could become weak and powerless. They're discussing out loud which one of them is the greatest. Isn't that ironic? Now, I'm thankful for these meathead disciples because they say out loud what most of us think in our heads and in our heart most of the time. We want to be great, but our desire for greatness is usually not really pointed or connected to God. Our desire for greatness is usually pointed, listen, and directed at those around us. For us and the disciples, greatness typically means for us being greater than others, The disciples want to be great. Like us, they have a thirst for greatness, but here we see their idea of greatness is in comparison to others. Listen to how C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. In the second part of the book, in the eighth chapter, he's talking about the greatest sin. That's what he talks about. Listen to how he says. He says, Pride has no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. It's the comparison that makes you proud. See, the pleasure of being above the rest. If I am a proud man... As long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, then he is my rival and my enemy. See, Lewis talks about it's not the joy of having money that makes us proud or the amount of money we have. It's the amount of money compared to others. So if every single one of us had $1 million on the dot in our bank account, we would not be happy. Because the joy and the pride that comes from that is actually being able to buy the better vehicle, to go to the better school, to be more refined, or to be better than someone else. Lewis points out a problem with trying to be great in comparison to others. You're never going to find satisfaction. There's always going to be someone better than you, someone with more, or somebody differently gifted than you. You'll never be satisfied. Lewis shows us a second problem with people who define greatness by being better than others also. Listen to what he says this. So here's the problem. If I'm always comparing myself with others and I'm trying to be greater than other people, listen what happens. In God, you come up against something that is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. Now listen A proud man is always looking down on things and down on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you're never going to see something that is above you. And that's God. So we have two problems here. If we define greatness in relation to other people, comparison to other people, we have the first problem, I'm never going to be satisfied because there's always going to be somebody better looking than me. There's always going—I mean, that one's rare—but there's always going to be someone. There's always going to be someone wealthier than me, or with better-behaved kids, or with a more rewarding, rewarding career, right? I'm never going to be happy if I'm comparing myself with other people. But there's also this thing: is if I'm constantly comparing myself with other people, I'm always looking at them and measuring myself, and basically, I'm looking down all the time, and I'm going to completely miss the one who's immeasurably greater and bigger and more great than I am. I'm going to miss God himself. But here's another problem as well. We all want to be great, but what criteria do we use to determine greatness? Michael Jordan was a great basketball player, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, right? He was great. Everyone would say MJ was a great basketball player. We're on first name basis like that. I can call him MJ, so So you didn't know that. But listen, was Michael Jordan great at life? Now, I don't know. I'm just asking, was he great at life? Was he a great father? Was he a great husband? Was he a great neighbor? Was he a great friend? See, there's a whole lot more. We would even say probably more important things to life than just your career. Isn't that a problem if we're defining greatness? Like, do I just get to pick something? Okay, I'm going to be great at my career, and then I'm going to be an awful father. Am I great? Right? This cri- what criteria do we use to define greatness? This is a problem if we're, compa- if we're always in comparison with other people. What standard are we using? How, If I get to the end of my life and I'm laying on my deathbed, what was the standard used to judge if I'm great or not? Is it my career? Was it my family or my morality or was it my relationship? What's the target we're aiming at? How do I know at the end of my life that I lived a great life? And we could even put this, if we want to put this in the context of religion, we would say when I stand before the throne of God after I die, if I'm being judged on whether I lived a great life or not, what criteria is God using to judge whether or not I lived a great life, whether or not I lived my life the way he wanted me to? Thankfully, see, Jesus here doesn't leave us guessing. Thank God for that. He answers those questions for us right here in our text. And what's interesting is Jesus, this is what's really interesting to me, Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for wanting to be great. He doesn't call them out and tell them to settle for average. Thankfully. No, he redirects their desire for greatness. Jesus says, if anyone would be first. That is, those of you who want to be great, this is how you do it, right? Here's how Jesus redefines what it means to be great. This is how you become great. He, or she, Who would be first, right? He must be last of all and servant of all. Hmm. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, verse 35. Here's our target, church. Here's our criteria. Jesus, the Son of God says this is what it means to be great. The way up is down. The way to the front of the line is by going to the back of the line. If you want to be great, be a servant, listen, to the least. Jesus here completely flips the power structure of the world on its head. He's saying the greatest person in the world you've never heard of because they're a servant to the least person in the world. The greatest person isn't the one who's got the microphone and he's on stage and he's saying, I'm the greatest in the world. Look what I've built. That was, whoa, I could, I just had a flash to some kind of political person. But uh, anyways, uh, that's not the greatest person in the world. The greatest person in the world, none of us have heard of right now, in our on our planet right now, because they're serving the smallest, the weakest, the poorest person in the world. Now that's important for us to realize. Because what we do as the church far too often, and if you've been in church for a long time, listen, you have a if you've been in church for a long time, right now, boom, you have a shield up. Your shield is up right now. You don't know it, but it's up. And what your shield is doing is this. I'm, I'm kind of like that. You know what? We need people to serve like I do. I'm so thankful that I'm a servant. What we do is, we, this is what we do. We don't know we're doing it. This is what our shield does. It takes what Jesus said, and it lowers it down to fence level that I can climb over it and say, I'm doing that pretty good right? It's not an impenetrable fortress standing above me that I'm like, oh, I fail miserably. What we do in the church is we pull this down where we somehow think we're doing this. We meet this. Jesus is very clear. He says, if you want to be first, be last, serve the, last, serve the weakest, serve the poorest, serve the lowest. That's the standard he's setting right here. Now, we, we want to go, I serve others, and we all do, in one way or another, we, but mostly here, when I check my own heart, I serve my friends. I serve my colleagues at work. I serve my family. I serve those who I'm impressed with or maybe farther ahead of me in their career or, you know, somebody that I want their attention or their acclaim or I want them to help me out in the future. If I had to be honest When I serve, most of the time, I secretly hope these people can repay me in the future. Kind of making an investment in their life. And then if I ever need them, hopefully they're going to give it back to me. But Jesus shows us here in verse 36, that's not the service I'm talking about. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. That's not the service he's talking about. Jesus said, and you know what, just to to make it clear to us, because we all want to weasel out of this, This is what Jesus does. He illustrates his point, right? Look at verse 36. And he took a child, so there's kids in the gathering here. There's missional community. There's kids running around. He took a child, and he put him in the midst of them. I wish this kid's name was in here. I just think this is unique. The Son of God picks up a little baby, little boy, holds him in his arm, puts him on his lap. How intimate. And taking him in his arms, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me only, but him who sent me, being the Father himself. Who? Are we commanded to serve? Who are the ones who are poor and powerless? Jesus shows us specifically one illustration of that right here by picking up a child, right? The powerless. Now, think about children. Because if you, if you don't have kids, when you hear this illustration, you're like, oh, yeah, the babies. Right? But if you're a parent, you see who he's really talking about the impatient, those who are incessantly needy. (laughs) They don't give you a break, right? They don't understand mama needs a coffee break. They don't understand that, right? Incessantly needy. All they do is take, 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 and take some more. Jesus says, that's who you serve. Serve those who are hard to serve, who can't repay you. Serve those who don't have any power to help your career. Serve those who can't lift your social status in any measure. Serve those that don't even make you feel good about yourself. Serve those. Honestly, little children are some of the most draining people to be around. But Jesus says, serve them if you want to be great. Greatness is defined by serving those who are poor and powerless, the least of these. Now, This can be worked out in many different ways. There are a lot of powerless people in our city. The poor, those with special needs, those in nursing homes, the unwanted children in the womb and out of the womb, orphans, Christians hear this, Jesus says, if you want to be great, serve them. Protect them. Leverage your power for them. Can I ask you, Christian, are you currently doing that? Are you using your God-given station in life your resources for those who are powerless in our city. I know you want to be great. Nobody just wants to be like average, right? Nobody wants to be average. Everybody wants to be great. But are you seeking greatness in the way that Jesus says true greatness can be found? By serving the poor and the powerless like Jesus did, or like they were Jesus himself. I'm just gonna throw this out there. Can you imagine? Let's put our imagination hat on for a moment, okay? Can you imagine what our cities would look like if every single person who called themselves a Christian, who put Christian on their Facebook status, really lived like this? really believed this, that true greatness was found not by exalting myself and comparing myself to others, but actually serving the least of these? What would our city look like? I'll tell you, it would literally be the greatest city in the world. Not because of what we could produce and what we could send to the masses and our technological advancement and all of our great businesses, but because the ethos that would be there the culture that would be in our city, the spirit that would be in our neighborhoods. Those with power would be using their power to help the powerless. Those with capital would be using their capital not to exploit the poor, but to serve them and help them. Every single unwanted child would be adopted and loved and raised inside of a Christian loving family. Can you imagine how this city would feel? It would be safe. It would be warm instead of cold. Be kind instead of ruthless. Be caring instead of disconcerned about the needs of others. It would be friendly. Friendly. I don't know if we know what that means. I think Facebook has redefined we think we have a thousand friends. You have f- maybe five. Our city would be friendly, neighborly, relational, forgiving, honest, humble, beautiful. we believe this? Church, if we believe this, the Bible's so complex, so many books, 66 books, written over thousands of years, so much depth to it. How about this? What if we believed this? Instead of arguing about dragons that come up later in the book, Right? What do the dragons mean? What do the lampstands mean? The Book of Revelation. What's going to happen at the end of time? There's a blood moon coming. What does it mean? How about this? Serve the powerless. I'm not saying any of those things are not important. They, are, but they're comparatively, they're not important. They're going whatever that's going to happen in the end times when Christ comes back. All that's going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back and everything sad is going to become untrue, and the city that we're talking about right now is going to infect the whole world. Everything will be soft, caring, loving. He's going to do it. He's doing it right now in our midst. If we believe the gospel, what's happening in the future can happen in our city right now, and people get a foretaste of it. People get a preview of the coming attractions of what's actually going to happen if we believe the gospel. What if we just believe this one piece here? Jesus says, this is greatness. This is what it means to be a great person. Let me just throw one little thing out here, because I love Sam. If our church really believed what Jesus is saying right here, our kids' ministry would never have to ask for volunteers again. They'd be turning away people on Sunday mornings. Nope, we're all full. Don't need it. Because we're so pumped to serve the least of these. I want the pastor's kid to call me stupid this morning. I can't wait to serve in the kids' ministry. Right? That's how whew, I knew we were going to be persecuted. Didn't know it was going to be by the pastor's kids. Right? I'm joking, but I'm serious. We all want to be in here. I'm glad that you do. I love preaching the word of God. Life change happens when we believe the word of God, absolutely. But Jesus is saying it also happens in the kids' ministry. It also happens as you're serving little babies who don't give anything to you, who will poop on you and pee on you and puke on you and call you names and dare you to get upset about it, right? Look at you like, you need to learn about sanctification, right? the kids' ministry, Jesus says, when you serve there, when you serve the least of those who can't repay you, something special, supernatural happens where Jesus communes with us and fellowships with us, and not just Jesus, but God the Father also. You get a special blessing. As you receive them, as you receive these children, take them into fellowship. Welcome them in. You receive Jesus and the Father as well by serving those who cannot repay you, who don't have anything to offer you. You're serving Jesus and not yourself. might be the only time all week long, honestly. What do you think? Now listen, here we go. If the shield has come down, I pray that it has, And you're actually hearing this for what it is, the Word of God, that Jesus says, here's how you can be great, serve the least of these. Let me ask you the question that I hope you're asking yourself. How are you doing at that? Now, what if this was a pass-fail? See? Do we think Jesus kind of grades on a curve? We're comparing ourselves with others. What if this was a pass-fail? Are you serving the least of these with your power and your resources? Are you? Are you putting their needs above you? I hope you're backed into a corner right now. We all are. And when you get backed into a corner, I hope you, you know, depends what's going to happen in your heart, but you're probably going, Justin, come on. Can anybody really do this? Can anybody actually serve the least of these? Can anybody really put themselves last of all and be the servant of all? And be, you know, serve even the poor and the powerless? My answer to that question is first, it's it's twofold. Absolutely yes. I'm going to go two places. One, let's just, and we don't, many of us don't know this. We, we need to read some church history. We need to read some you know, books without pictures sometimes. There are, our church, the church, the history of the church is full of saints, Christians, who've lived this very type of life. I'm going to try to name two that you probably are aware of. One, Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa, everybody, she got brought to the White House, right? She doesn't have a, she never had a phone. She didn't tweet. Really laying my life down for these orphans in India. Hashtag White House. <laughs> she served the least. She moved, served the poorest of the poor in India, gave her life to them. Started orphanages all over the world. God exalted her. She was put herself last. God made her. People know her name. Another guy, a guy that you maybe have heard of, William Wilberforce. He spent his life, his adult life, working to abolish the slave trade. He used his capital for that purpose, his power for that purpose. These people could have sought greatness in their own terms, but they didn't. They sought greatness by serving the poor and powerless like Jesus. But there's also a second. So I could give you a hundred names right now, a hundred names of people who have given their life for the poor and the powerless, okay? So we have this mentality that nobody could really do that because we're so selfish and our friends are so selfish, but the history of the church is littered with men and women who gave up their life to serve the poor and the powerless, okay? So that's a lie that we're believing. But secondly, can a person really live like this? Yes, absolutely, but here's the kicker, but only if that person... Has first been served in this way by Jesus himself. That's the kicker. This is probably the most important part of this sermon this morning. Because this is how you actually get the power to give up your life and to lay it down. See, Everyone in our city, just about, if they're a decent human being in our city right now, they say, oh, yes, yes, yes. You should serve people. That's all and good. Like, you should do that. They agree with it, but they don't. You ask them to go serve on mission. You ask them to go serve down at the soup kitchen or serve somewhere. And what do they say? When? When is it going to be? Friday? Okay, I have to check my calendar, check my schedule. I'm not sure. We might have... You know, there's things Saturdays, busy. See, everyone in our city says, yes, you should serve people, but we don't. We don't have the power to actually do it. We're self-focused people. We only serve others when it's convenient for us. Or when we think we can get something out of the deal. What's what are you guys doing for mission this month? That sounds kind of fun. I don't have anything in my account. Sure, I'll do it. It's convenient for us. See, this is what's wrong with our world, guys. Look, look at this. Everybody knows what they should do. No one has the power to do it. I should care about others, but I really don't. I should serve the poor and the powerless, but I really don't. I should care about, in the, about the environment, but I really don't. I should read more and watch less TV, but there's a new show on Netflix, right? I should save more and spend less, but I don't. I should eat better and work out more. I should, I should, I should, I should. Everybody knows what they should do, but why don't we do it? Because no one has the power to do it except Christians. You might think that's arrogant for me to say that. If you're not a Christian in here, how could you say that? Follow with me here. See, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion gives you the shoulds. Here's what you should. Ten laws, ten ways to enlightenment, four steps. Every other religion says, here's what you should do, go do it. And every other follower of religion tries their hardest and they fail over and over and over and over. Only Christianity commands you to do it, and then gives you the power to actually do it. How does it give you the power? Right here. The answer is in the power of the gospel itself. That's why Jesus shows us, before he tells us, serve others, what does he show us? I'm going to die. I'm going to serve you in this way. Jesus is saying, every single time you serve someone who cannot repay you or cannot do anything for you, you should remember how I have first served you. See, this is we call this around here gospel-centered obedience or gospel-powered change. And it comes through thinking. I want you to think about this. Think about this. Here's how you can be full of power to actually do what you want to do, which is serve others like they're better than you. I know you want to do that. We have something in our heart that wants to put others first. Here's how you do that. Think about this. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Only the gospel gives you the power to actually live the life that Jesus is calling us to do here. We all want to be great. Jesus says, here, how? Listen, 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 listen. You want to be great? Here's how. Let me, this is what Jesus says, let me serve you. Let me die for you. Let me save you and cleanse you. And to the depth that you are aware of that and you understand that, as it comes into your mind and it changes your heart, you will be empowered to serve others like this. As we believe what Jesus has done for us and we experience it, we'll be able to live that out to others. Think about it. See Jesus serving us. See Jesus, the most powerful human being that has ever walked the planet. The Bible says the whole fullness of God dwelled in him. And what does Jesus do? He serves us by laying down his life for us. See, Jesus was the first who was treated like the last. He was the king who became the servant over all. And only by letting Jesus serve you first and being completely blown away by it See, that's the difference. There are many people that say they're Christians and they would say, Jesus died for my sins. Disconnect. It's not like you read it in an encyclopedia and you learn it. Christians are blown away by it. It's the most beautiful thing that ever entered the planet. It's the most self-sacrificial thing we've ever witnessed. It's the most gracious thing. It's beautiful. It blows our mind that the Son of God would die for me. And it grips our heart. And it becomes like Paul, the one true thing in all the universe. He said to Corinthians, I want to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Why? Because that was the moment where everything changed in the world. When Jesus died for sinners, the whole power structure of the world flipped on its head, and that moment changed the world as we know it. The world says, power, right, might, the more power you get, the more might you can conquer other people, and you can win, and at what? You know, right comes through might. Whoever can be the most dominant wins. Jesus flipped it on its head. He said, no, I am the servant of all. And he dies and is crucified and is resurrected and now he's the king of all. Why? Why do Christians go to other countries to serve the poor? Because of Jesus. How does this look? Look, 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 look. I'm trying to help you. Work it out in your daily life. This is what a Christian does. This is why a Christian goes to Africa, okay? And serves poor people. It's not to see the elephants. It's, a Christian goes to Africa because when I look when we look when a Christian looks at an African child who's poor. He sees himself. He sees himself. Child starving, he sees himself. See, we were poor, spiritually bankrupt, but the king of heaven died for us. It blows our mind, melts my heart. Why do Christians build hospitals? There's a reason most hospitals have the name Trinity, Genesis, Saint. Christians build hospitals. Why? Because we know we were sick spiritually, sick unto death with no hope of recovery. But Jesus came to earth, the healthy one, and became sick for us so that we might live to eternal life. Why do Christians build orphanages? Because we know that we were orphans. Spiritually, without a family, without a father, and Jesus, the true son of the father, was willing to come to this earth and lose the heavenly father for us. He lost his father on the cross so that we could could gain the father. We could be adopted into the family. Jesus became an outcast so we could be brought in. See, it's only by getting blown away by the beauty of the gospel, it's only by letting Jesus serve you in this way will you ever be changed on the inside and empowered enough to go serve others like this in the world. Now, what does that mean? That means... In a missional community, when it's time for, to serve the Leslie House or it's time to serve wherever your missional community serves, you have to do what I just did. Please, listen to me. Because in your soul is the desire for greatness in other ways. I'd rather run a race. I'd rather go get donuts. I'd rather, and I could fill my calendar with all kinds of things, Oh, well, my kids got gymnastics, I got this going on. So when you hear we're on mission this month and we're going here, you have to do this, you have to gospel yourself. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. Remember, it was not convenient for Jesus to come. Jesus came in an inconvenient way. It was not for Jesus' glory that he came, it was self-sacrificial. He was to serve the least of these. You have to do this every month. See? I'm going to Africa in, in January. Joshua knows I've been putting this off for two years. I hate the flight. I dread it. Right? I'm an introverted person. I don't like to be crammed with people on both sides of me for 16 hours. It feels really awkward for me. You watch three movies in a row and realize you still have 10 hours of a flight left. <laughs> I don't, in my natural, I don't want to do it. I But when I think about Jesus, when I think about the cross, when I I think about what Jesus has done for me, I know what He's filled me, and then it empowers me to do it. It changes my wanter inside me. And now I want to go serve the poor and the powerless, not for my glory, but for Jesus' glory. We all have to do that. We have to believe. Can you believe this, Christians? You don't believe the gospel either. This is why we're gospel centered. We all know what we should do. We lack the power to do it because we don't believe the gospel. But I'm here to tell you, you can believe the gospel and you can do these things empowered by the gospel. And if you do these things, this room won't be big enough for the people that are going to be changed by the gospel in our city. We'll have to plant churches. We'll have to multiply missional communities. We'll have to do it because the gospel changes people. The gospel changes changes people, changes us, changes our neighbors, it changes our family, it changes our friends. It's only by letting Jesus serve you like this, knowing what he's done for you, will you ever be able to serve others like this with any type of consistency? Again, are you doing this? Are you living like this? If you're not, probably because you don't believe the gospel. You know it. You don't believe it. You don't feel like that poor and powerless child who's been scooped up and adopted by the king of the universe. Any child that has spent their life in the street eating dirt to feel full, if the king of the If the king of whatever showed up and adopted this child, they would be elated and blown away. And that's happened to you. That's the gospel to you. The king of the universe has adopted you and brought you up into his lap and called you his own. At the the cost of his life, he's done it. Jesus gave up power and prestige to serve the powerless So followers of Jesus give up their power and prestige in order to serve the powerless. As as I'm done, has Jesus served you like this? Has he served you like this? Do you know him? Do you know that he's adopted you? Do you know that he's loved you? Do you know what he's done for you on the cross? Have you let him reason, Let me just show my hand here. The reason I want that command to be really high and I want you to feel convicted by it and I want you to realize that you're not doing it is because only if you realize that you can't do this in your own strength, only if you realize you're powerless, will you actually call out to the one who has all the power, which is Jesus, who actually lived this life that you don't live. Jesus did serve the least of these. Jesus was the greatest who became the last only by realizing you can't measure up to the law, the standard that Jesus says, go serve the least of these, only by understanding that we actually believe the gospel that's the good news that says Christ has done it for us. Christ has done it for us. Now, Christians never get tired of hearing that. They never get tired of hearing that. We say it around here. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, was the first person to say it. The gospel that we're preaching is like the ocean. Little babies can splash around in it. Are they in the ocean? Absolutely. But then you get out there, and there's whales out there, right? Like, there's plenty to discover. You can swim out into it and go deep down into it forever and not get to the end of it. That's the beauty of the gospel. And every single week, we get to discover another little piece of it. That's what we do at Sacred City. And it gets more and more and more real to us and more and more meaningful to us. And I, I see just how poor in my spirit I was and just how rich I am now in Christ because of the work that he's done for us. So I'm, call, I'm asking you, to if Je- let Jesus serve you this morning. That's what it means. What does that mean? Believe that the work he did on the cross, he did for you to make you right with God, to empower you to live this kind of life in our city. Believe it. That's what we do when we come down here. Jesus has served us. He's shed his blood. His body's been broken for us. Take and eat. Let him serve you. Let him serve you this morning. Christians, let that awaken in you who you really are. You've been served and now you're a servant. He's made you into a servant. That's who you are. You've been empowered to do it. What does it look like to serve your neighbors? What does it look like for you to serve your missional community? What does it look like for you to serve here at Sacred City? Father, we thank you for the work that you've done for us. No religion has this beauty in it. No religion has this power in it, the power to actually change self-centered people into servants of the least of these. And though we, were, this room is probably full of cynics, and I have a cynical spirit oftentimes myself, all I have to do is look down church history to see the fingerprints of servants all through church history who laid their life down for you and for the powerless. In our world, we can think everybody's out for themselves and everybody's got, you know, ill intent and bad motives, but Father, you show us that Christians have done this in the past and if we believe the gospel, we can do it right here in our city. Change the atmosphere of our city through self-sacrificial servant, service. And as we serve, you're there and the Father's there we remember what he's done for us we thank you for this father thank you for this Jesus this is about you thank you for this I pray as we come to the table that we would be moved we'd be broken we'd be overwhelmed just what Jesus has done for us we take the body the body of Christ that's been broken for us on the cross we eat it we take the cup of salvation that's His blood that's been shed for us on the cross and we would drink it and we would be reminded that you were the first who became last. You were the king who became the servant of all. The servant of us. Thank you for this, Jesus. Amen.